so glad that you're here as we begin our series, Set the Captives Free. And as we're praying, as we said, we're going to take it all the way back to the beginning. Because I don't want to assume today, church, that everyone in here automatically, when we pick up in Exodus chapter 11 and 12, we're going to say, oh, okay, I I know exactly where we are. Um, we want to go back to the beginning just to do an introduction to bring you up to speed to where we're going to start here with Set the Captives Free. Our focus today is on the Lamb, a pure, spotless, innocent Lamb. So that's our focus today. But let us go back to the beginning for a moment and work our way back to Egypt. Now, in the beginning, God created the world and he created this earth. And out of darkness came forth light. God said, let there be light. And you've heard me say before, and I truly believe this, that when he said, let there be light, light came onto the scene. He spoke it and it happened. I believe that's the power of his spoken word, the word of God. And so light comes onto the scene. And then from there, he begins to create. And shortly after he creates, he makes man and woman. He makes man from the dust and he breathes life into his nostrils. And as he breathes life into man, he bears the image of God. Now, we would say, that's great. He takes on characteristics of God, like his nose and his eyes and everything, just like a dad would look at his newborn son. No, because God is in spirit form. So it's not the physical characteristics that he takes on, but the likeness of God in Christ and the Holy Spirit. He takes on their image. And from there comes woman, because praise the Lord, Adam was in charge of having all of the animals come through. And he saw that none of them were a suitable helper for him. Amen, men. (laughs) Okay. And so then comes a woman. There's a rib taken from Adam, a helpmeet, a side-by-side helpmeet, one that would serve together. And this woman was perfect for him. And God created and, and, and actually established the first marriage between man and woman. And it was beautiful. And he put them together to guard um, and to take care of the garden, to, to work. And things were good. That's all they knew was good until they ate of a tree in which was forbidden one tree out of all the trees in the garden and they took a bite of one fruit from the forbidden tree and from that there comes sin. Yes, they were tempted by the serpent but they gave into their fleshly desires and when they take of that fruit and they, and they bit of that fruit then sin came onto the scene and it was devastating because it brought darkness, it brought shame. They were ashamed of their, their bodies and we see this still today. Many people are ashamed of their very bodies that God created them with and they were ashamed and they went to cover themselves and God saw what they were wearing. He said it's not good enough. So God made coverings for them after he sacrificed an animal. God covers them and he kicks them out of the garden. And he says, you will not eat of the tree of life. So he put protection around the tree of life. Because if at that moment, if Adam and Eve would have eaten of the tree of life, they would have been dead in their sins forever. And that was not God's plan for them to be dead in their sins forever. They were to have life and life more abundantly. So he kicks them out of the garden and we see that their first two children, one brings a good sacrifice and one brings a not good sacrifice. And the good sacrifice was, go figure, a lamb. And Cain is upset with Abel because Abel brought a better sacrifice. So he kills Abel right there. And we see the first murder on the scene shortly after sin comes onto the scene. And so time begins to to go on and then we see the flood and a man named Noah who was looked upon as righteous because of God's grace. And God says, I'm going to bring a flood. Waters are going to come up from the earth and waters are going to pour down like you've never seen before. And he floods the whole earth. But before he did, Noah built a big boat by the instructions of God. 
and he took his family and they got on the boat. Now here's what you must understand. In Exodus chapter 6, we see that man's heart was wicked towards God when they got on the boat. They get on the boat. God brings a great flood. It floods the whole earth. It was much better than the movie, okay? And after that, he gets off of the ark. And when he gets off of the ark, after the waters have subsided, they make a sacrifice. But here's what's interesting. In Exodus chapter 8, here's something you need to know. Exodus chapter 8, man's heart, still wicked. Wicked intentions. Nothing's changed in man's heart. There is darkness in his heart. But God gives a covenant. We understand now what a covenant is. A promise. So we see a covenant now that's introduced. He would put a bow in the sky. Last weekend when I was fishing, I looked up and I saw a bow in the sky. A rainbow. This is a promise that God would never flood the earth in such a manner ever again. And yet today we can still see this visible covenant before us. And then we see that life begins to change. Did you know that before the flood, men were living up to 965 years old? Methuselah. Around 900 years old, you know? Can you imagine having a birthday party, finding 900 candles, putting it on the cake? 900 years old. But then life begins to change after the flood. It goes down to 120 years. Life begins to dwindle down and down. We see that this earth is no longer the same. And earth was never the same after the flood. Never the same. So we can come up with all these theories of how old earth is or or whatever. You you go ahead. Knock yourself out, okay? But I'm just going to tell you, earth got messed up in the flood, okay? It got all turned up in the flood, okay? And we see that death is coming forth to this earth because sin brings forth death. And then we see later the tower of what is known as the Tower of Babel where a bunch of people gather together and they make this huge tower going up into the sky. And then all these people come together and they say, let's build this tower and make a name for ourselves. And we can see with very few details of what goes on in this account that God is not pleased with this for the very statement that they want to make a name for themselves. Does that sound familiar? I have to be somebody. I have to make a name for myself. God is not interested in us making a name for ourselves, but that we would make a name for him, that we would glorify his name. So God takes all of these people that have gathered together, and he sees that it's a pretty dangerous situation, and he confuses them. Can you imagine showing up to work the next day, and the guy beside you starts speaking a different language? Today, um, Haddon um, was, was talking to me, and I think it was, uh, they were talking in the Thai language, and, and they were saying, hello, and, and how are you? And I'm just kind of looking, and I'm looking at Denny saying, what, what are they saying? What are your kids saying? They picked up a different language when they are in Thailand. And, and, and I don't understand it, but that's where it all comes from. Right there, when man wanted to make a name for himself, and God separated the people, and he spread them out throughout the world in different nations and different languages. And it would bring much frustration, not only in that moment, but in the future. And then we see later there's a man named Abram who would become Abraham. And God made a covenant with Abraham. And he says, Abraham, step outside. Will you look outside? Will you see all the stars? you see all of those stars? That's how many people you're going to have in your lineage. These are all the people who are going to come after you. You're going to be a father of many nations. Can you go ahead and start counting the stars? Church, have you ever tried to start counting the stars? I mean, you get to about 100, 101, you get frustrated, and you forget where you start and where you're ending, and then you just give up. You can't count them all. And he's saying these are going to be your people that are coming after you. And so there's a promise, there's a covenant made with Abraham. Just like he put a covenant in the sky, he made a covenant with Abraham that he would have many people come after him. And so he said, I'm going to give you a son. Now, 
Like most of us, Abraham decides to take it, like all of us, Abraham decides to take it into his own hands of how he will have a son. And so he takes Hagar, his uh, wife's helper, and he begins uh, to form a family through her. And, and he has a son named Ishmael. Well, that was not God's plan. God meant that there would be a son come through Sarah who was 90 years old. Now remember, this now was old. And Abraham was 100 years old. In fact, they laughed that this was going to happen. And then there was a son who came and his name was Isaac. Can you imagine how precious Isaac must have been to Abraham to hold Isaac and say, you are the promised one and from you, the stars of the sky, the sand on the shore, so many people will come from you in your line. And God says, take your son Isaac. This was when Isaac could have been a teenager. Maybe he was in his 20s. And he said, hey, go kill your son on a mountain. Now, if we were to put this in the news, everybody would go and, and, and say that God's unfair, that God's unjust. How could he ask his uh, Abraham, who he made a covenant with, to kill his son? But God says, go, kill your son. So he takes him, he puts him up, uh, they go up on the mountain, and on their way, Isaac asks a very important question. He says, Dad, where's the lamb? And that's a very good question because that's the question that's been asked throughout the Old Testament and would be asked, and we are waiting for the lamb The lamb would come. He says, where's the lamb? And Abraham turns and responds. And I don't even think Abraham understood the significance of his response when he says, God will provide the lamb. And so when they're up there on the top of the mountain and he goes to kill his son, right before he kills his son, angel of the Lord says, stop. And there caught in the thicket was a ram. Not a lamb, but a ram. And they took that ram and they sacrificed the ram. Instead, God says, I see your faith. I see your faith. And so from there... We're still waiting for the lamb. Great anticipation for a lamb will be provided. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was first, but Jacob finagled his way into stealing the birthright. You can go back and read that. And from Jacob comes 12 sons. And one of his sons was named Joseph. And he loved Joseph more than he did all the other sons. Why? We don't know. Maybe that's not the right parenting mode. Okay, but that's what it says. He loved him more than all of his brothers. And his brothers were jealous by that. His brothers didn't like that. Then Joseph had a dream, and he goes and tells his brother this dream. He says, hey, I'm going to be worshipped by you guys. I mean, that would make any brother mad, right? And so they take his brother, they take him, and they sell him into slavery, and they cover it up as if he has been attacked by ferocious animals. And they take his precious coat, which his dad gave him because he was the precious one, and they take his coat back, and they dip some blood on it. They say, see, he was attacked. He's, he's dead. He's, he's gone, Dad. But no, he really wasn't. There were some traders from Midian who came and they took Joseph into Egypt. And they sold Joseph to a man named Potiphar who was in great command under Pharaoh's army. And Potiphar took Joseph home and he, and he noticed that there was something special about Joseph that maybe, um, you know, his characteristics, there was something that stood out to him. So he put him in charge there in the home. And while he was in charge in the home, uh, Potiphar's wife makes advances at him. And so Joseph does what a godly man should do. Joseph flees. And as Joseph flees, she lies. And she says, he came on to me. So poor Joseph, who flees, and we're reading this and we're thinking, okay, God, this isn't fair. I mean, the man left the scene and he didn't do anything, but they throw him into prison. So he understands what it means to be innocent, but declared guilty. That's significant to understand. Innocent, but declared guilty. So he's sitting there in prison. You know, God understands everything that you deal with, and God would understand someone who's innocent and declared guilty sitting in a prison cell. And that will all come to light soon. 
And so as he's there, he has these dreams. And it's because of these dreams that Pharaoh, or he interprets these dreams, Pharaoh has this dream about cows. Uh, there would be uh, seven cows that are very thick and very healthy, and there are seven lean cows. And he doesn't understand why he's having dreams about cows. And so they bring Joseph out from the prison. They say, hey, this guy right here, he can probably help you. And so they bring Joseph out, and Joseph says, well, let me tell you what the cows are all about. He says, the, the healthy cows, that means you're going to have seven prosperous years. And you need to gather up during that time. You need to get everything you can and store it up because then there's going to be seven lean years of famine that are going to come upon the scene. And so because of this prophecy and and, and foretelling of the dream, then they enact upon this and it all comes to fruition. So would you have this situation? It It was perfect that Joseph's brothers would come to Egypt because of the famine years down the road and Pharaoh made Joseph second in command. So he was dressed up all like Pharaoh. My son likes to play Pharaoh. He doesn't like to play Jesus. He likes to play Pharaoh. I'm concerned about that. But he'll look at me and he'll go, I'm Pharaoh. Okay? And so, um, and so Joseph was like a Pharaoh. And he was there. And so his brothers come before him and they, need a, they offer a request for food. And they don't recognize him. And Joseph weeps because his brothers... Don't recognize him. He remembers the whole story. And basically, to, to whittle this down, he, he gets his father to come with them. And then he reveals himself that he is his son. And he was never killed. But no, God put him through all of this to be a type of a redeemer for his people. And so 70 people come together from his family and they gather in Egypt And this is quite significant to understand that now they would live in Egypt. They would have their own place. And Pharaoh was good with this until the next Pharaoh came along. Because guess what happened to all of these people? They grew. And they began to grow in number. They were known as the Israelites. They started with 70. And their number began to grow so rapidly that the new Pharaoh looks and he says, This isn't good because they're going to outnumber us. And when they outnumber us, then they're going to take over us. So we must press them harder to work harder to persecute them. And so they did. And guess what happened? As they pushed them even harder, they grew even more. Their number continued to expand. They couldn't stop this because this was God's hand at work. And so Pharaoh says, I know how I'll stop it. I'll take some midwives and I'll tell these midwives that they'll go to the Hebrew women and they must tell these Hebrew women that whenever a boy is born, they're to kill him on the spot. So the midwives go and they knew that they couldn't do this. So they make up the story when they come back, when they got caught and they said, hey, there's still boys being born. What's going on? And they said, look, the Hebrew women, they're pretty quick about their business. You know, I mean, we, we got there, but they had already had the boys. I mean, and it was a good story. Believable, not quite. So Pharaoh says, I'm going to send my men and we'll go kill the boys. So they begin to kill all baby boys, throwing them into the Nile. Cruel act. A man who thought he was king, God, and he was threatened by man. Let me tell you something. The one true God is not threatened by man. And so he kills these little boys. Well, there was a precious little boy to be born by a precious woman, and she gives birth to a little boy, and in three months' time, she protects him until she can't protect him anymore. And then she takes her precious son and she puts him in a basket and, and floats him down the river and asks that his sister goes and keep a close watch. Now, here's what's amazing. Pharaoh's the one who issued this decree. And then it was his daughter who finds the basket. And here's this boy. And she names him Moses. 
and the little girl comes, his sister, and tells her the whole story. They take him back to his mom, and when he's weaned off his mom, then comes back to Pharaoh's daughter, and she raises him underneath the nose of Pharaoh. Here's Moses, God bringing up this man. So Pharaoh is raised as a, as a mighty person in Egypt until God makes it clear that these are your people, the Israelites. And when they were being mistreated as they normally were, one day, for some reason, it just affected Moses in a different way. In the same way that when we hear the gospel message, all of a sudden, it just affects us in a different way because God's at work and he's revealing it to us. He reveals to Moses, these are your people, and he kills a man in anger. And when he does that, he flees to Midian. And when he flees to Midian, then he has this whole identity crisis, and he's thinking, who am I? Am I Egyptian? Am I a Hebrew person? What do you want me to do, God? And there's this whole um, deal with a burning bush where God speaks to him. He says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. And he has this fellowship with God, and he's bewildered. He ends up marrying a woman, and then God says, I'm going to send you back. And I'm going to give you three signs to perform when you go back. And here are the three signs that you will command. One will be that you will throw your staff down and it will become a snake. Another is that you will put your hand in the cloak and then when you pull it out, it will be white as snow. And when you put it back in and you take it out, it will be normal. And then you will put water on the ground and it will turn into blood. You know why I had to do these things? Because he had to convince the Hebrew people that God was about to deliver them. Because they were going to doubt him. But they weren't really doubting Moses. They were doubting God. That he would deliver them from slavery, from Egypt. Over 400 years now, they had been slaves. 400 years. The tides changed pretty quick. And they were slaves for a long period of time. And so they had lost hope. But they had truly lost hope in God. Much like we do many times. And so he gives them these signs to perform before the elders. And he goes, he performs these signs, but then he also says, I cannot speak. So Moses shows his own weakness. He says, I can't speak, God. I can't speak. I can't do this. He says, okay, if you're going to doubt me, then Aaron will speak. Your brother, he will speak. He's a good speaker. I will empower him. He will speak. So Aaron would be the spokesman. And so they would walk up onto the scene and they would tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let the people go. Pharaoh would laugh at them and say, why why should I let them go? And we see something even more serious, that Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and it's hardened by God because God is about to show a mighty work in the land of Egypt. This is where we come today to the plagues, and we will look at the tenth plague headed into the Passover. But the plagues, the first plague was when he turned the water into blood. So we see the plagues begin with blood. Turns the water into blood, and then he brings frogs, then gnats, then flies, then dead livestock, and then boils upon people's skins, and then hail, and then locusts, and darkness. Why did God choose to do all these things? Because Pharaoh worshipped all of these gods that he believed existed. The sun god, and the water gods, and the land gods. And God was attacking them and showing them that he was more powerful than them. And then he comes to the end. And he does something very familiar, familiar that Pharaoh would understand. He is going to take the firstborn of all of those who are not covered in the blood. Now understand that I did not just say the firstborn of the Egyptians only, but the firstborn of everyone who is not covered under the blood. And this is quite significant that we understand this. This final plague will send Pharaoh mad to, to drive them out of the land. And they're commanded after this, before this plague to go to all the Egyptians and to ask from them gold and silver. And guess what's going to happen? 
when these slaves go to the Egyptians and ask for gold and silver after nine plagues, they give it to them with a smile. They plunder them in kindness. Hey, can I have your gold? Can I have your silver? Hey, can I rob you? Yeah, okay, give it to me. And they give it to them. Willingly, they give it to them. This is God's grace providing for them because they would take this gold and they would take this silver and it would be or should be used for greater purposes in the future. But as we get down the road, we'll see what they use some of this gold and silver for. And so then they receive this gold and silver, and then they prepare, and then they understand that around midnight, every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. But he tells the Israelites, if you follow through with with my commands, not even a dog will growl at you. You will be protected. And so Moses declares the final plague to Pharaoh, and then he walks away from Pharaoh in hot anger. He is done with Pharaoh. It is over. But Pharaoh would not listen because God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That is clear in Scripture. That he might declare his wonderful acts and his glory. And in no way is God unjust in this. We understand that every firstborn will die around midnight. So if every firstborn is going to die around midnight, what's the remedy? Because you would want to know, I would want to know, we would be acting quick to find out how we would save our firstborn. What would happen? What would we do? What do we need to do? Tell me. So God brings forth the remedy. And the remedy is to take a lamb that is pure without spot, that is a year old, and they're to kill this lamb, and they're to take this blood, and they're to put it on their door frames and on the lintels of their houses, and then they are to take this lamb and to cook this lamb and to eat all of it to save none of it until morning. If they can't eat all of it, then they are to burn the rest of it. This was the remedy. An innocent lamb. As we see, A.W. Pink quotes, the lamb was provided to glorify God's character, to vindicate his throne, to satisfy his justice, to magnify his holiness. None of the lamb was to remain until the morning. And so they would eat. Not only would they eat of the lamb, but they would eat of unleavened bread. And they would eat with great expectation. In fact, they would stand when they eat. You ever been to somebody's house and uh, maybe there's a bunch of people in the house and somebody's standing at the counter? Maybe that bugs you that people stand and eat. You would rather, you're a sit down and eat type of person. Nothing wrong with that. I think that's great. And you're like, hey, would you just please sit down? But there was no time for them to sit down. They were girded up. They were ready, sandals on their feet, eating with great expectation because the deliverance was about to take place. 430 years in Egypt to the very day. And God is about to lead them out through this powerful act, this redemption. The Lord will pass through and bring judgment in Egypt. And this will be forever known to the Israelites as a Memorial Day. Just recently, we honored Memorial Day last weekend. And we remember all those who have gone before us in our country and who have fought battles. And maybe you've watched the History Channel. I've gotten caught up watching World Wars. Man, oh, goodness, it's just been good. And and so, but you just remember all of those who have fought for this country. And you remember them and you're thankful for them. But for the Israelites, it was Memorial Day. It It was about a lamb. And they would always look back at this. And for many people today, many Hebrew people today, they just see it as a deliverance from Egypt and nothing more. But it was much more significant than that. The focus was on the lamb. 
And so at this Memorial Day, this remembrance, they would feast for seven days. And none of them would go out of their homes until morning. It would be known as the Passover. And the Lord would pass over if he was to see the blood. So hang with me here because here we go. It was not based on their genealogy. It was not based on ceremonial observance. It was not based on their work. It was based on the personal application of the shed blood. That is so important for you to understand that God just didn't look at the Israelites and say, hey, you're my people, you're good. No, you need blood. They needed blood. That's very significant for us to understand, and we'll look at that in a moment. So hang with me. Hebrews eleven twenty eight. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And when the people, when Israel heard this, this was their response in Exodus twelve twenty seven. The people heard this and bowed their heads and worshipped. Oh, that when we think about the blood of Jesus Christ, that we would constantly bow our heads and worship. Did you worship today when we were singing about the blood of Jesus Christ? Israel hears the blood of the Lamb and they bow their heads and worship. For 600,000 men, not including women and children that would go along with them, would be redeemed. You remember the number they started with? 70. Now they're traveling a million people. And they're about to flee, all of them. And it's not whoever can run the fastest, sorry for whoever's the slow one. No, it's God will deliver them out of Egypt. And he would lead them out at night, and it would be known as a night of watching on the 430th anniversary of living in Egypt, as we see in Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 through 42. So this is where we start with setting the captives free, with the lamb. And we're going to learn about this all during the summer. So today is a type of introduction. So this message is a little bit different, kind of a little history lesson that we've gone through. Let me give you some application here of what we see happening from this point forward and then coming into the New Testament. We see that there is a final plague. There was a plague in Egypt, the 10th plague to take the firstborn, but there is a final plague upon us, and that is the plague of sin. Everyone in this room is under the plague of sin. All of us will die. We will die a physical death. Unless Jesus Christ comes back for us before that time, we will die a physical death, but many Many will die in eternal death because they are not covered under the blood. All of us, all around us and in us, there is sin. It's coming from external influences of the enemy and internal influences of our flesh. So it's coming from outside and inside of us. And there are wages to sin, and that is death. Yesterday, I came back from Orlando. Many of you know um, that my sister-in-law was, had a baby, beautiful girl, 9.3. Um, man, that's a lunker in fish terms. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you would mount that on the wall. And um, so we will cut this part out of the recording, okay, so she will not hear this. Um, but she's a beautiful girl, Lanier. And uh, she took a while to come into the world, but she's here, and we're excited. 
And on the way home last night, I wanted to get home quick. I was ready to get home. I had my son with me, and I said, I'm going the interstate all the way um, and through Orlando. So you know that if you're privileged to travel the interstate and go that nice road, you're going to have to pay some tolls, okay? And so I went through about seven or eight toll booths, and I had all my change ready. And every time I drove up, um, I knew how much I needed to give, and so I gave the exact change. And, and one time I drove up, and there was this lady in this burgundy vehicle, and she opened her door, and I was like, oh, you're going to be one of those people, okay? So she opens up her door, and then she's counting change. And I'm thinking, man, I'm looking, and I have it all timed out, actually, on my phone. And I'm thinking, okay, if I leave now, I'll get here, and I have the map, and it's telling me I'm going to get home at 8.15, and then it went 8.16, I'm like, come on, please, okay? So finally she gives the change, and she gave too much change. So the lady's like giving her back the change. And, and I'm just saying, can we please go? And I really wanted to honk that horn, but I didn't, Okay. <laughs> Because I'm a Christian. No, I, I didn't. I would have anyway. Okay. And so I'm, I'm waiting and I'm ready for her to go. And then finally she goes and, and then I pay and I get my change and boom, we're, we're headed on. And so I see her and then there's another toll. I mean, not even a mile apart. And I'm like, man, they're gouging us. Okay. And so we get up there and, and she starts to pull over into the lane that I'm going to. And I'm just now going to give this as a confession. I sped past her. I said, oh no, we're not doing that again. Okay. Um, it's already 818. I'm not going to 820 here. And so I pull in front of her and I get my exact change. And as I'm pulling away, I see that door open up and I was like, yes. Okay. So I pull off and I'm sure she had a nice trip. Um, but finally I get out of all the toll booths and, and I get home and, and I got to thinking about that actually on the way home. And I thought, man, you know, for us, the road we're traveling on is sin. We have a toll to pay, and that's death. That's our wages. It's death. And there's, we, we will never be able to pay that back. And, you know, we'll never be that person that says, here you go, God. Here's all that I have. And God return and say, oh, no, no, Brian, you gave me too much. Let me give you a little bit back. You did more than enough. I mean, we'll never be that case. I mean, we will always come up short, even if all of us gave a collective effort. And even beyond this building, let's just take the whole world, gave a collective effort of what we could do that was good before God. It would never be enough. And so there was one who would have to pay the toll for us, who would have to pay the wages for us, and that is Jesus. If we want to go to the way, the truth, and the life, if we want to get to the Father, there's only one road to take, and Jesus made that payment on the cross. That is what we're seeing. So for our sin, there are wages, and that is death. We will never have enough to give to God. We will never show up before God and say, God, look what all have I done. Is this enough? If you're banking on that, Understand, your future is eternity in hell. You'll never have enough. And don't ever think that God's going to give you something back to think, hey, you did more than enough. Congratulations. No. Jesus did it all for us. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord The Egyptians lost their firstborn on that devastating evening, but a greater devastation is coming. Hear the scripture, and you'll want to write these down because I'm going to go pretty quick from this point. Matthew 16, 28. For the Son of Man is coming, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's scary. He's going to pay each person to what they have done. None of us have done enough, and we've done far too many things that are wrong. Even our good works are filthy rags before him. So he's going to repay us for all of that. 
Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Whether it's rich, poor, powerful, weak, pretty, ugly, Man, woman, throughout all races, everyone is in danger of the judgment against the plague of sin in our lives. There is only one remedy, which places all pride aside and entitlement, which doesn't exist in this remedy. This remedy is filled with grace and love, and it only comes in liquid form, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the remedy. He's the lamb, the pure, spotless lamb. I mean, John the Baptist couldn't get enough. John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as Jesus is coming to be baptized. He sees him again in John 1, 35 and following. He says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. One of them was Peter's brother. Isaiah 53, verse 7, it was prophesied. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you are ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I love this passage because the Hebrew people, they gained gold and silver from the Egyptians. That wasn't enough. That was not the redeeming grace. It was the blood of the lamb. It's the blood that led them out of Egypt, that delivered them, that set them free from the captivity of slavery. And in the same way, we are set free from the captivity of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, through a pure lamb. We learn of this pure lamb in 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. John 19, verse 6, the second half, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Hebrews 19.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Today, if you're without Jesus, all of your works are dead. They're dead works. It's doing all of that work for nothing. All all that work for death is what you're doing. But you can have life in Jesus Christ. Your life is in sin. You're held captive. You're not free. 
We're not free people. It doesn't matter what we say as a country. We're a free land. No, we're not free people. We're enslaved to sin. Only Jesus sets the captives free. And this redemption means that we are grafted into the family, into the covenant. Remember the bow in the sky, the covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as it continued to go along, and now this covenant is made through Jesus on the cross. We see that we are grafted into the family of God. That's what we have in common together, church. Romans eleven seventeen. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Jesus Christ supports you. There should be no arrogance in your life. You shouldn't look to other people and think that you're above them. Remember the root. That is Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 11 through 13. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same is Lord, is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not just for the Jews. Salvation is for everyone. Anyone who would call upon the Lord. It's not just upon one race. He brings redemption together, the redeemed together. We all encounter the exodus because of the blood. It's not based on anything else, church. Will you observe the table? It's not based on anything else. That's why we have this table before us today. And then this last part, it makes us heirs with Christ. Heirs with Christ. We're grafted into the family and we become heirs. Listen to Romans 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So when you worry, you're putting yourself back into captivity. You fear. When you've had trials that have come upon you, and you will have trials, and there will be tough times, church, that we face, will you cry out, Abba, Father, or will you go back into slavery mode? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. All that Christ has, we will have. With this great expectation that we have our belts fastened, sandals on our feet, staff in hand, and that we eat with readiness, knowing that Jesus Christ is coming back at any time. Are you ready? for the return of Christ. Are you ready? If Jesus were to come back today, are you ready? Are you so ready for that? Oh, I want to watch The Bachelorette tomorrow night. I don't know. (laughs) Some of you have that go through your heart. That is wicked, all right? And we laugh about it, but isn't that so true? I mean, we said, I mean, you probably thought, yeah, but... Yeah, I mean, Jesus coming, I mean, that's great, Brian, but, you know. But what? I mean, it, nothing gets in the way of that. 
He can come back right now. Praise the Lord. I, I, would, I would love it. There's a great expectation in your life of the return of Christ. It's time that we move forward in victory because we have been delivered and set free from the captivity of sin, church. You see, the Passover is a memorial for the Israelites. It's a seven-day feast for the Jews. But the cross is a memorial for us. It's a 24-7 remembrance of Jesus as we feast upon his flesh and drink his blood. Now, that last statement may have gotten you if you're not used to hearing that. And you think, eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. I mean, that kind of sounds like one of those vampire movies. Let me tell you, listen. Jesus said it. He said, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And I'll read it to you here in John chapter 6, starting in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you ready? You have no life in you. It's the blood of Jesus that gives you life. It's his body that gives you sustenance, strength. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks in my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So today, we take of the bread and of the cup, and we remember the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that he also brought life. And so when you eat of that bread, may you be reminded of his body nailed to that tree. But also as you eat of that bread, may you be reminded that his body gives you life every day. Every day that you would sin less and that you would sin less and that you would sin less. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I want to sin less, but it seems like I just keep sinning more and more and more. You must trust in Christ, not in yourself. Trust in Christ. The blood, the cup, when you take this bread and you dip it into the cup and you eat, you remember the blood that Jesus poured out for you, which cleanses you of all of your sin, all of your sin that you've committed. And remember that it's the blood that was upon upon the, the doorpost. And when God would look upon the blood, he would say, skip over that house. And there will be a day when we stand before him and we will be covered in blood and he will say, hey, my judgment passes over you because my son died for you. That's good news. May we never, church, grow tired of hearing about the lamb. If you grow weary and tired of hearing about the lamb, you have gotten your focus off of God and you've put it back on man. Today, will you remember the lamb? This table, this meal is for Christians. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I invite you to do one of a couple things because it, I mean, let's just be honest, it could be a little awkward for you if you're sitting there and, and we've talked to some people and they say, we don't know what to do during this time. Look, one thing you don't have to be concerned about are people judging you. And if people are judging you, then let that be dealt with between them and the Lord, okay? But for you, your greatest need is life with Jesus. And I'm going to be standing in the back during this communion time. I've already served the men who are coming forward today. And uh, they, they will serve during that time. We're going to be standing in the back. I would love to talk with you. If you want to come and say, hey, tell me more about following Jesus. Tell me more about the Lamb. 
That's what you need to be focused on right now if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, not coming to this table. If right now, um, church, you're entertaining sin deliberately and there's no confession and there's no repentance in your life and you are truly harboring sin, there's some act of sin that you've committed and you know it and you're not giving it over to the Lord, I would advise you not to come to the table but that you would confess your sin before the Lord and make it right. And if there's true confession at this time, then come and receive. But if not, do not eat of the table. This is for those who are openly confessing their sins to the Lord, understanding that we have all failed this week. Okay, I'm not saying I'm sitting here before you perfect that I haven't failed this week, okay? I'm sure it's wrong that I passed that lady in the line, but I'm just telling you, my focus right now is on the cross and the forgiveness we have in Christ as yours should be as well. So when you come, there's no conversation among ourselves. We come in silence. We come to eat of it, and then we go back to our seats, and then we worship. But you will come as you're ready. So I'm going to ask that at this time we go into a time of just examination. So if you will, please bow your heads and examine your hearts, and you pray before the Lord just as you get ready to come and receive communion as we remember the Lamb. I'm going to ask that our praise team go ahead and come forward and then our men who are serving, if you will go ahead and, and come and prepare. I'm just going to take a moment of silence just for you to reflect. And you, this time you look within your heart. Examine your life according to the Lamb. Do you have life in Jesus? If not, we'd love to share with you more about Jesus in a moment here in the back. Let's go into a time of examination. moment as you are led. You have five men standing here in, in different aisles that you can come and receive communion. You'll take the bread and dip into the cup as you're led. Remember, this is a time of worship, and so you respond as God leads you, not as man leads you. We also have someone standing in the back foyer there for you. If it would be easier for some of you um, who would have a hard time standing for a period of time, you can go to the back foyer to receive communion. But I ask that if you want to know more about Jesus, come talk to us. If you want to know about membership, sign up for that membership class coming up. But at this time, may we focus on the Lamb. You come as the Lord so leads you to receive communion. 